Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the How to Become a Personal Trainer podcast. We are your hosts, Mike Vacanti. My name is Jordan Syatt. And in this episode, it's part one of a two-part series in which we discuss the 10 most common mistakes that coaches make. And they might not be the most common, but they're definitely very common mistakes that coaches are making. Enjoy. Cheers, George. Cheers, Michael. The big reach. How you doing? Well, man, we got a little chamomile tea, little bedtime podcast. I'm excited for this one. Me too. We thought of this this topic about an hour ago, and we're both very excited about it, and have been brainstorming ten excellent mistakes that coaches make. Which one do you want to start off with? Zero small talk. All right, let's have some George small talk. George is just going straight in. <laughs> he is all business. <laughs> all right. Which one do you, let's go. Let's Which go one with we some start small with talk. Them? We got some some legs tomorrow. You know, that's that's where my main focus is right now. Strength training? Yeah. Lifting is going well. We got legs tomorrow. Lifting is going well. After, let's call it many years of not taking my own and dare I speak for you and say our own fitness seriously enough the newbie gains coming in these first couple of weeks are outrageous the mood enhancement from really lifting heavy has yeah. been great yeah heavy deadlifts heavy pull-ups it's mm-hmm. been good mm-hmm. weighted chins for you know a lot of like three four five rep close to max effort sets it it's not even the like during the workout feeling or the post workout feeling it's the cumulative feeling of lifting heavy the next day mm. when your entire you know hamstrings glutes back are all sore from deadlifting and you just feel higher energy overall yeah yeah feel strong feel accomplished you can like start to feel like the muscles working again yeah feels super good feels amazing it's so it's interesting sort of the and i guess this would actually go well with the the last episode that we did the a day in the life of a personal trainer mm-hmm. but the more and more and more you get into it the more coaching you do this so easier it is just to not be interested in your own training mm-hmm. and now just in a phase of my life where i'm like getting really back into it and we're, and we're on a schedule which is helping a lot yeah. That schedule is huge. If that wasn't for the schedule, I don't think it would work nearly as well. Yeah, but, the, the month of mm-hmm. basically our six weeks of every workout we're going to do on mm-hmm. a calendar uh, and which days are rest days, which are few and far between. We're basically training six days a week. And then the our plan for fasting. Yeah, which I haven't done in – I've never done extended fast like this. You've never done more than – A 20-hour fast. Yeah. Ever. Well, actually, we did a 24-hour uh, – no, we didn't do 24. 21-ish. Yeah, you did about 2021 20, because we broke it early. But then we got like a 36-hour coming up. Coming up. Yeah, this this weekend, tomorrow night or Friday night. Friday night. Yeah. I think – and I guarantee some people are going to be like, why? Why would you do that? First and foremost, not recommending anybody else do this. This is something that you've experimented with for a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. I was like, I'll give it a shot because why not? More just to 
go through the experience of it to see how I feel, not for any other reason. Sort of like how I do with my YouTube videos. I tried the carnivore diet, did the Big Mac challenge. I'm interested to see how it makes me feel. I'm also interested to see if it exacerbates any past issues I've had with food. The first one did not at all, at all. I was And I asked you about it during it. Yeah. Because I was curious about that. You were like, are you sure you want to do this just based on that? Um, I was... I was very curious if the first 20, 24 hour fast was going to lead to me wanting to eat significantly more at when I broke it, when I broke the fast. And I didn't. I a very normal, healthy portion. Meanwhile, I haven't had a binge in like a decade, but like still, I was like, okay, got to be aware of it. So it'll be for 36 hours. I'll keep a close eye on it. But I'm excited to see how, because anecdotally, people have really seen tremendous benefit from doing it, not even from a fat loss perspective, just yeah, like my, mental health and energy. My my goal around fasting is 0% body comp. Mm-hmm. I mean, on, on the normal 16-8, that can be effective for restricting calories if you're in a deficit, but I've never programmed anyone or recommended extended fast for body composition. Uh, I'm much like you in that the reason I want to start doing more fasting is for curiosity, mm. for the potential, not, I won't even say potential, for the actual mental benefits around um, sacrifice. Uh, it's not even discipline. Like there's an element of doing it because it's hard, but there's also a, a, a spiritual and like a, something non-physical that I think we will benefit from. Yeah. Um, I'm also interested in potential physiological benefits like giving my digestive system a break for a day, Um, like uh, potentially some, uh, I don't even, because this isn't a reason, but potential benefits when it comes to longevity, when it comes to, um, and this I think 48 hours is kind of the bottom of of the time range. And maybe we'll do a full episode on fasting if we want to talk about this it's in detail. Our experience with it. Yeah. But but just potential long-term health benefits coming from someone who has ingested at least 30 grams of protein every five hours for 20 <laughs> years. <laughs> just a lot. <laughs> just give your body a break. Yeah. I, I think... I would run into issues and many would run into issues if they approached long-term fasting from a body composition perspective. And and you just mean longer than like a 20 to 24 hour fast? Even a 20 to 24 hour fast. But yeah, if you're approaching it from the perspective of you're restricting as long as you can so that you can lose weight more quickly, mm-hmm. I think what will happen is eventually you'll end up, you'll end up sort of rebounding on the back end of the fast. You'll have mm-hmm. a huge binge of like, I haven't eaten in 24 hours. I haven't eaten in 36 hours. So I'll eat as much as I possibly can. And it won't negatively affect my fat loss. Because if fat loss is the goal here, then basically you'll do whatever you can to not hurt your fat loss, which I think that will end up rebounding in binge eating, mass quantities of food eaten. Whereas when you're doing it for other reasons, when fat loss sort of like, I mean, a lot of people say it, it makes sense. When you remove fat loss as the goal, a lot of times you end up losing fat right? Mm -hmm. When you remove fat loss as the goal, but you focus on how strong you can get, a lot of times you'll end up losing fat, getting stronger, loving your body better, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I'm interested and curious. I I think this will probably work the same way. For me, the first fast that we did, I was, my mental focus was pretty intense. Mm -hmm. Um, 
it was pretty intense and it could have been no carbs. It could have that that might have been why. Uh, it could have been the fast in general. But I'm very interested to see how my energy is and mental focus and clarity is. And that's really where I'd like to keep the purpose of this for me is if I keep the focus on how do I increase my energy naturally throughout the day? How do I increase my mental focus? How could this benefit me on a monthly basis type mm-hmm. of a thing, as opposed to how much fat can I lose in this 36-hour window? Not to mention we're both in places in our lives now where losing some body fat isn't this massive priority. <laughs> exactly. Right? And we've recently shared some stories about previous times in our lives when we've been extremely lean or even trying to get leaner or trying to stay very lean. Um, when there's that added pressure, there's more likelihood of a binge. Whereas mm. when you don't even necessarily, like, sure, you're doing a mini cut right now, yeah. but you don't have your ego wrapped up in your body fat percentage exactly. probably at all or very close to at all. And, and that in itself removes, I would imagine, a lot of potential likelihood of binging. Yeah, 100%. I agree. Yeah. All right. We will keep everyone updated on how, I mean, next week, we'll talk about yeah. how this this 36-hour fast goes. And the longest I've ever gone with no calories is uh, about 40 hours. I've done really? that a couple you times. You did a 40-hour fast? I, did, I didn't know that. I did a few of them. Yeah. How'd it, they go? I didn't know that. I mean, uh, maybe I did, eat, I stop, forgot. eat is basically 40. Eat dinner, uh, yeah. nothing the next day. And then you kind of bring the fast until mid-morning Got it. the following day. And um, Shout out to Brad Pylon. Yeah, shout out to <laughs> – exactly. It, uh, it went well. It went well. The day – the first time I did it, I didn't do any sodium. I didn't do any electrolytes. And I, my energy levels were really dragging. But the second one I did, I added electrolytes two or three times throughout the day. How'd you add those? And just the- just literally put salt in oh, got water it. Got it. Okay. and drank it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm excited to see how this one goes. All right, this is going to be part one of ten mistakes. That coaches make. (laughs) (laughs) Just on the same page. Um, Number one, training intensity, too much emphasis on functional training. All right. This is all one clump together. You want to begin on this one or you want me to start? You can start talking about functional training. All right. Functional. Okay. Yeah. So we'll start on functional training. There's many ways to go with this, but first and foremost, I think one of the biggest mistakes that coaches are making in regard to functional training is they think of functional in one very, in one lens only that is functional as the, as like functional means that either you're like, you're, you're walking like a monkey or a gorilla or like, like a caveman, whatever it is that functional is only exercise done for the purpose of uh, movement patterns and for core stability. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's great. And I think for the vast majority of people, including some type of that training of that, some type of training of that sort into their program is important. The issue is functional by definition is whatever someone needs in order to achieve their goal. 
right? So functional for someone who wants to grow their biceps would include bicep curls. Mm -hmm. Whereas a lot of coaches might look at bicep curls and be like, oh, well, those aren't functional. It's like, well, if they want to grow their biceps, they are. Absolutely, they are. If someone, I mean, it's interesting how people, how coaches define functional, but a lot of them look at it as like balance training or mm -hmm. like trying to do like crawling on the ground, which is all great. If that's what you're into, it's totally fine. And I incorporate much of that into my own training because I enjoy it. The issue is when you get so dogmatic and, and one-sided that you just think the only way to functional train is through those types of methods and that no other methods are of any value whatsoever. And I think we're going to talk about this later on in the list, but the reality is functional for one person might include bicep curls. Functional for someone else might include hip thrusts. Functional for someone uh, might even include crunches, which I think we're going to talk about later as well. Mm -hmm. It's functional is not solely defined by functional for life and living. Functional could be functional for your personal goals, which includes aesthetics and many other things. Yeah. Very well said. Um, I think training intensity matches up well with what you just said in that you're rarely going to program many of the exercise that you just listed to failure or to Absolutely. like, you know, bear crawls, RPE nine. <laughs> you're just not really, <laughs> it's not going to, it, it doesn't make sense. Um, I don't even know how you do that. <laughs> Unless you're doing like bear calls with a weighted vest. Yeah. Or like dragging a sled, whatever it is. Yeah. Coach on your back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> a very heavy weighted vest. Um, but one of the mistakes, it's, I guess it's two mistakes and we're really lumping them together. One of them is an overemphasis on quote unquote functional training in the way that you just defined it. And also um, as opposed to whatever other kind of training, bodybuilding style training, more aesthetic style. Like that's what all of the programming I had ever done for myself was prior to actually becoming a coach. Mm -hmm. That's what every free online program I'd ever gravitated toward. Um, every like, you know, in 2007, 2008, 2009, some of the websites we've mentioned recently, simplyshredded.com. Oh, like just, yeah. just pulling like random free want to be big yeah exactly <laughs> like basically strength and and aesthetic workouts and that's where everything i had ever done for myself had come from because that was my main interest uh when i started coaching um that's when i began to not even incorporate but also even like understand the functional world a little bit and understand there is a purpose to strength training and programming other than looking as good as possible. Yeah. <laughs> and, and working with various, and we've talked about this, but various client types yep. helped with that massively. Um, but in addition to that, when you, when a lot of coaches are on the floor with their client, just not taking enough sets to uh, adequate intensity yeah. within a few reps of failure even. Like I would imagine, a gr I've seen many coaches having a client go through kind of a random superset of 
a lower body move and an ab move. And maybe they're doing a step up or maybe they're doing a goblet squat as the lower body move. And they have them doing three by 10. And if you put a gun to the client's head, they could do 40 reps at that weight. <laughs> yeah. Like, like they're just not getting anywhere near the intensity they should be. They should be increasing the weight and maybe they're chatting, whatever the reason is. Um, we talked about this in the podcast on, I don't even remember the exact one, but training intensity was one. Yeah. It, it, Program the, design. The, yeah. The muscle building or the fat loss. I think it was muscle building. Muscle building period. Because training intensity is just so important for muscle building. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so the takeaway here is obviously with proper technique, taking more sets within one to three reps of failure yeah. is, is going to do almost all of your, a, a lot of your clients, a huge service. And obviously not the rank beginners, not the people who haven't mastered technique yet. Right. It's like sort of, yes. you have to have that base of, well, the technique must be good. Number one. And of course, rank beginners are going to be able to get stronger with significantly less than their one repetition maximum. But the important thing here is that we're not saying work up to one rep max. If you're doing 12 reps of something, mm -hmm. then the last two to three reps should be very difficult. And again, not every single set of every single exercise and definitely not for complete beginners. But that being said, sort of go back on that. I think finding what exercises are okay for complete beginners to go towards failure mm -hmm. is actually really important because mm -hmm. some, like when someone comes into the gym, there are a lot of people who they want to work towards that. They want to feel that way. And it's important that they don't leave the gym feeling unaccomplished, mm -hmm. right? So there are some, especially towards the end of the workout, when yeah. it's like, you want to call it a finisher, you call it a finisher, but doing things in a way that allow anyone of any fitness level to reach that point is a very important aspect of coaching in terms of finding the movements that that individual can do safely towards a point of failure. And as they get more conditioned and as they get stronger and as they improve their their level of fitness, then they'll be able to work towards a greater level of failure and do it with better technique and more advanced movements. But whether it's by, I mean, I remember I used to do, uh, I vividly remember this at the gym that I interned at when I was a young kid, we used to do these uh, like mini finishers where it would be uh, band rows, right? So seated band rows. And we would either do it with a band or we ha they had this piece of equipment. I believe it was called a myo-force. It was like a, a myo-force means muscle force. But basically what it was is where you could, it was doing a row, but it was a contraption where it was like a TRX, mm -hmm. but instead of the TRX, instead of it, because the TRX doesn't change length and it can change length, but it doesn't move. Uh -huh. The straps moved. So as you rode, as like you rode with your right arm, your left arm would come in. And as you rode with your left arm, your right would come in and you could control the intensity by resisting with the other arm. Hmm. So like we would do these finishers where, and you could do this with dumbbell rows if you want to, you could do these high level fin or these high intensity finishers where they would, it's a very safe movement. It's a seated row. There's very little risk of injury, especially if they don't have any back issues. And you just really push them to increase the resistance they're giving themselves on this. Mm -hmm. and, and then, or if you want to use a higher uh, resistance band, you could do that. And that way, as they're rowing, they're getting to rep 12, rep 13, rep 14, rep 15, where it's like near failure, if not failure. And it's something that it doesn't take much uh, 
coaching to learn proper technique on that and to take them there and then to get them feeling their back muscles and to really like, wow, that was a burnout set for my back. gets them excited to feel muscles they haven't felt before and really work towards that level of intensity. Yeah. That's a great point. Don't take a rank beginner and make them fail a barbell back squat and dump the bar. <laughs> like there, there are movements and, and being smart with exercise selection where they can safely achieve that level of intensity because like you mentioned, it's motivating and it feels good. And there is some benefit. That's right. I mean, there's a lot of benefit for intermediate and advanced lifters, but even for beginners, there's some as well, not least of which psychological. Mm-hmm. Cool. Number two, not utilizing rest periods properly. Yeah, this one's important. And there are many directions we can go here. Uh, I just see, and when I say I see it, I also speak from personal experience of doing it myself, but also like at gyms, I see coaches doing this a lot. I see them doing it with their clients where either, and I see this happening, this, I see this happen probably more frequently than not, is coaches not letting their clients rest enough because they're, especially early on in the workout, when they are doing strength-based movements and they're with a client that really wants to sweat, right? So like, all right, well, I'm just going to keep you working, keep you working, keep you working. Mm -hmm. And the issue there is, is several fold, not least of which you're letting the client dictate the workout based on what they say they want rather than what's actually best for them. Mm -hmm. um, and not to mention it's very hard to show a client how they're progressing strength-wise when you're not letting them rest enough. Mm -hmm. I, I, and this sort of goes back to the point number one in terms of intensity. If you're allowing your client to use high enough intensity, they don't need to be, they, they won't need short rest. They, they won't want, want a little short bit rest. of a rest. They yeah. want it. And they don't need to be doing seven different exercises at once. You don't need to put them in a circuit just to keep their, their, uh, their excitement up. It's like, they're going to be excited to go back and lift heavier weight again. It's one of those things where I think it's very easy as a coach to be like, well, I don't want my clients to get bored. If your clients were doing a set of six at like a very high RPE, they're not going to get bored. That's mm -hmm. just a fact. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you ever see, because I agree and I've seen a lot of that and I've even seen, I hate to say this, I've seen it intentionally programmed as a strategy for client retention, which, which is such a disservice mm -hmm. when- it's scarcity versus abundance mindset, right? It's the same as when an online client tells you that they want something that you think is fine, but not the best for them. And you cave and you do it their way because you're afraid they're going to leave. Yep. Whereas if you tell them the truth, like Martin Birkin, <laughs> yeah. speaking of, but um, they're, <laughs> they're going to be more likely to respect you. Mm -hmm. They're going to be more likely to believe you. And it's just the right thing to do. Absolutely. Um, I'm slightly losing my train of thought. Oh, so with gyms, I've seen it as a strategy to, you know, to, to keep clients and to keep them interested when, and, and just from the perspective of um, which coaches are working, uh, what the layout is of the gym, equipment availability, um, programming in a way that makes sense for everybody, maybe allows for maximum number of, of clients at the same time, whatever it might be. Whereas 
you know, there are situations where logistically you can't give a client three by five barbell back squat with three to five minutes rest. Right. Um, but for their goals and for what they're doing, that might be what you should give them at least sometimes and what makes the most sense for them. Mm-hmm. So inappropriately using rest time for various reasons, but yeah. And, and not to mention just not understanding like, okay, a little bit more rest, getting stronger, kind of in the mid range, building muscle, retaining muscle using glycogen as a source, and then faster pace, more endurance. Yeah. And obviously, if you're teaching a, a large group class, that's different. But when you're working one-on-one or even small group, two to four different people, you should be – it's not a class format. That's a high-level program design, strength training program, where if you really want to give your client the best of everything, the beginning portion of the workout should be – heavier mm-hmm. strength based uh 2 to 5 minute rest depending on who you're working with and what the move is and how heavy they're going and then progressively going down in rest periods all the way down to 60 second rest or maybe even 30 second rest depending on on what kind of circuit you're doing um which sort of goes to the other point where i i see other coaches just just and it's going to combine one of the is this the next one We'll make it the next one. The sort of just chatting away with clients and 12-minute rest periods, and they get a total of four sets in by the end of the workout, and uh, they get nothing done. And this I, is, I see, and this happens, I see, as you get a better relationship with your client sometimes, yeah. and it's just like you just become good friends, and mm-hmm. the person, it's funny, like, actually, I'll I'll tell a story after you talk in a second, I'll... When you mentioned this, when we were brainstorming and you said, I think your exact words were letting the client talk too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just went, oh man, I do that. <laughs> and <laughs> and I haven't always done that. But right now, the only in-person coaching, well, I'm not doing any corona, but outside of Gary, the only in-person coaching I was doing was with um, this client who's a friend of mine who I see once a week. A guy named Pat, really interesting guy. He's actually a dating coach is his profession. And he's very like, he's just interesting. He knows a lot about history, knows a lot about a lot of subjects. And the reason I linked up with him was because of his content. And a lot of what he was putting out was just interesting to me. And so when we started working out within a few sessions, we were comfortable with each other. And sometimes seven, eight minutes would go by between sets because he's a talker and he can just go on about whatever. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes clients use talking as a strategy yes. <laughs> to, to, to get a longer rest time to avoid working hard. Um, but I am as guilty as any for, for various reasons. And I've heard other coaches talk about, you know, having lawyers or bankers or, or just very like, interesting people in certain fields that you're interested in and hearing them talk. And if they're willing to talk to you, like that's very valuable. Yeah. But having enough uh, discipline really to limit them, even when you're interested in what they're saying, because you have their best interest at heart. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, there are many ways to handle it. And every coach struggles with this, every myself included. Uh, There are a number of strategies that I've used to try and mitigate it. Number one, just 
people hire a coach because they want the coach to tell them what to do. They like it. They like it. And you're there to sort of keep them accountable, push them. So, I mean, number one is have a stopwatch on your person. And now we all have phones. So it's like we have a stopwatch on the phone. So you can say at the end of every set or at the beginning of whatever the exercise is, be like, all right, so we're going to do this and take two minute rest in between sets. As soon as they're done, you hit start and you show them the clock and then they start talking, whatever. And as soon as it's done, be like, all right, finish telling me this once, once the next set is over. Because if it's just you explaining it, often maybe they might feel as though you are cutting them off or you're not interested. But when the clock is running down and it's an objective time, okay, it's up. It's not you cutting them off. It's saying, all right, cool. Time is up. Just keep finish your story once the rest is, once the exercise is over. Great strategy. So it doesn't seem like you're being rude. Exactly. Yep. Uh, and other ones realistically, and this is one, uh, if you're actually very interested in what they're doing, whether it's, you know, a banker, a lawyer, whatever it is, um, and you actually really enjoy working with them and you have a good, uh, work relationship with them is saying like, Hey, listen, like if you have a, an hour free, um, uh, after training or whatever it is, let's go grab coffee or like, let's go on a walk after and, uh, and chat more or like, Hey, you know, I'd love to pick your brain and talk on the phone sometime. Like most of them are very happy to do that. Uh, and that way you can sort of say, Hey, listen, like let's crush this workout. Let's get it done. But I want to actually pick your brain about this later tonight. Um, personally, my favorite strategy is the stopwatch because it's just so objective and you can still get the discussion in while keeping them on track. Yeah, that's smart. Stopwatches are very underrated. In, in training. It's one of those things where, especially with my own training, like in my own training personally, if I keep a stopwatch, I'll blast through the workout. Oh, it gets I, done so fast. I'm, I'm intentionally being hesitant towards this because we're training together right now <laughs> and I like longer rest times and I have no interest in Yeah, you hate anything. the shorter rest. <laughs> hate them. Every time I go, Mike's like, what's with the short rest periods, Jay? <laughs> and it's been fun because we've kind of been alternating days programming. Mm. Jordan's doing the, the deadlifting, the lower body and uh neck. The, the neck <laughs> yep and then we're kind of alternating on abs and i'm doing more of the upper body stuff right now and it's great yeah but like the first leg day we did i swear we got it in in 38 minutes <laughs> and, it, and it was intense and great and but yeah hard the uh there's a an, uh, one of my all-time favorite stories and when we were working out at, at la fitness in florida and we were doing 10 by 10 on leg press with the stopwatch. With the stopwatch. I was so mad. Yeah, this was one of the angriest I've ever seen Mike. This is like legitimately top five angries I've ever seen Mike. We were doing 10 by 10 leg press uh, and <laughs> German volume training. Just like stupid. It was just fun. Why not? Let's do it. And uh, 60 second rest. And there were some times when I would start going at like 50 or 55 and Mike would be like, what is this? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> well, because the clock would go on you. And then I would just go after you. So right. whatever you chose as your rest was the amount of rest that I got. And <laughs> we were doing one minute rest, which is insane. Yeah, it already is insane as is. And you were cutting it short. <laughs> I'm still mad. <laughs> and and that wasn't like, that wasn't the workout. That yeah, it was, wasn't. Then we did five by six reverse lunges oh, with, with a pause. With, 
with a six second eccentric. Oh yeah. yeah. Like, well, <laughs> this is more volume than I do in a month on lower body. <laughs> right there. Oh, that note that you wrote, you're like, you know, you know how I feel about lower body day when you were leaving. Oh yes. my God. That's so yes. funny. <laughs> but Rest times are obviously important to, uh, (laughs) (laughs) but to get back to the point, (laughs) but but really just know what you're trying to accomplish with rest times, be intentional with rest times and, uh, don't let either, um, you know, don't let anything get in the way of whether it's you being uncomfortable with bringing it up or you being selfish and interested in what your client has to say. Yeah. Yeah. What's the next one? Is it talking? Is that the next one? Um, the next one is doing two. Well, that so that was rest time and letting the client talk too much. Oh, got it. Okay. Yep. So number four is doing too much cardio to make up for bad diet. And I, my feeling was that this wasn't quite as common a mistake that coaches are making, but apparently it is. The I see it, and I mean, you. I showed you TikTok today. Some of the stuff that you saw on TikTok, I'm sure, surprised the hell out of you. Yeah, like yeah, some that's of the true. exercise advice that was on there that was getting <laughs> millions of likes. Yeah, um, you just flap your arms for a minute straight, and then you get the body weight tone triceps. Oh God! At the end of the video, you're like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> like it's the whole video. There was this person on TikTok who is basically showing these exercises, no weights in their hand, none, no weights in the hands, just literally basically waving their arms Mm -hmm. saying, this is how you get toned arms, Mm -hmm. just going up and down, left and right. Um, So I think you've done a good job of, of not consuming terrible fitness content over the year or last few years. And I've seen a lot of it. I I believe you. And one of the the poor poor things I've seen coaches do less in the science-based community and more in the general bro science, I guess we'll call it, is where they're prescribing significant amounts of not just cardio but high intensity cardio hmm. in place of and they don't say like do this and you can eat whatever you want, but they do say do this type of cardio to burn more fat so you don't have to worry as much about what you're eating, which I have a number of issues with, not least of which being personally, I've always found that longer duration, low intensity cardio is much more sustainable and a much better way to uh, improve your calorie output as opposed to brief sessions of hit. Uh, we're on the same page. Just for not least of which significantly lower risk of injury. You can sustain it longer. There's not as much of an impact on your strength training. Um, And realistically, like doing five sets of 10 sprints, you're not going to burn that many calories compared Mm -hmm. to walking for 30 to 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're just not regardless of the the epoch and the post- uh, what is the what is the word that they use for marketing? Afterburn, the afterburn effect. Uh, you after you burn uh, calories for forty eight hours after your workout is over with five for sets three of weeks after you're still burning. Yeah. Them. <laughs> <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I remember Lyle McDonald had a 
unbelievable article on that myth years ago. And and he was just like, look, Epoch's real. Here's what it is. Yeah. And it's not that great. He broke down the studies so well and basically, and I'm going to botch the actual numbers, but it was to the effect of, listen, this is how it works. If you do like a standard hit workout, you might burn a net total of 72 extra calories over that 48 hour window where he's like, if you just did lower intensity for a total of 30 to 60 minutes, you'd burn significantly more than that. And it was just like, it was a, a great way of breaking down how people will deliberately misconstrue studies in order to promote their agenda, to promote their new product go for afterburn, whatever it is. And I think nowadays people, they're not deliberately misconstruing them. They're just, they're just consuming the information that has already been misconstrued so many times that they just believe it at face value. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. so, yeah. So, I mean, I don't think realistically most or any of the people listening to this struggle with over-prescribing cardio in order to not worry about nutrition. I would imagine pretty much everyone listening to this knows that nutrition is really the most important when it comes to fat loss. Mm -hmm. But still worth mentioning for on a top 10 list. Definitely. And I think you even gave us like a 4B with the low intensity steady state versus high intensity. Which cardio. I believe we spoke a lot about in the fat loss pyramid, fat loss training pyramid. Yep. We, we spoke did. a lot about that. So if you haven't, if you want to learn more about like, we both, we think both are great, both hit and lists are great. But if you want to learn sort of why we think lists is better, low intensity steady state is better generally for fat loss, go listen to the fat loss training pyramid, which is a, a separate podcast episode. And I don't even think the point I'm about to mention is something that we talked about there, which is just a recent thought that is doing low intensity steady state outside just gets you more time. One, if you have sunlight and if it's an appropriate time of year for you based on where you live, getting some vitamin D is amazing for yeah. many reasons. But even if, even if the UV isn't great, even if it's winter, like we spend so much time inside yeah, and under fluorescent lights, hunched over a computer with bad posture, like so many of us, whether you're, you're doing online stuff, um, even it just being in a gym all day and not getting out much, but being outside moving around is so beneficial. Taking your shoes off. Yeah. Getting on some grass. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So for that reason, um, in addition to the ones that we mentioned in, in the fat loss pyramid episode. What's the next one? The next one and the the last one for this episode. Oh yeah, we're making a two-part series. Two-part series is, uh, is one that I'm just interested in hearing Jordan talk about because he's a sumo deadlift extraordinaire. Oh, I and, forgot about that. Okay. Um, I myself have three weeks of sumo deadlifting experience under my belt, but well, I, this is good. <laughs> so read it. What's the Th that? Uh, well, I just wrote that most coaches have conventional uh, start clients with conventional deadlifts rather than sumo deadlifts. Yes, yeah. and that's, in my opinion, a huge mistake. The main exception for the rule being if someone has severe hip issues, 
starting them off with sumo is not a good idea. Taking a wider stance for someone who has uh, hip issues, labral issues, then you'd probably want to start them off with a closer stance, maybe something like a trap bar as opposed to a, a sumo deadlift. But it actually works well that you and I are talking about it because when we first started deadlifting a number of weeks ago, your initial stance was conventional. It was, it was. And my initial stance, the first time I deadlifted in, you know, I, I started deadlifting late in my training career. Like I did random goofy workouts for the first number of years and then started doing heavy compound movements in college. Um, but I was benching and overhead pressing and doing pull-ups and barbell back squatting for a number of years before I started deadlifting. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I started deadlifting, it was conventional because that's just, I think it was actually ripto. I think it was like doing starting strength yeah. is, is where I started conventional and it always felt what I thought was fine. And, uh, and I ran that up for a few years until I hurt my back and then I was like, well, this stinks. I don't really want to do this again. <laughs> Didn't really like these. <laughs> but so when a couple of weeks ago, we started really like working up our deadlifts. I would love to, I would eventually love to get back to a 500 deadlift. Not anytime soon, no rush whatsoever. But when you started doing the conventional, it, how'd that feel? Um, well, when we with 135 on the bar, it felt pretty okay. And then when we started loading it more, it didn't feel great. Low back area, is that where it was? The the same probably right off of the left side of my L4, L5. And then was it the first session or the second session that you tried sumo? It was in the first session. And I, it immediately felt better, right? Yes. Why? Like what felt better? I didn't have a shooting pain down my lumbar spine. And this is... <laughs> This is exactly why I always start with sumo unless someone has hip dysplasia or, or some type of uh, labral issue or whatever. Conventional, this is a simple question for everyone listening. What requires more mobility, a close stance squat or a wide stance squat? If you want to get to parallel, if you want to get to parallel, you significantly more mobility is required in a close stance squat. You need significantly more ankle mobility. You need significantly more thoracic mobility. If your hands are behind you in the bar, you need significantly more shoulder mobility in a close stance squat. It's way harder to, to close stance squat. Mm-hmm. And when you look at a conventional deadlift in the bottom position, it's not a close stance squat, but it's very close to it. It's just slight hip position changes that really make the difference. And at, but your stance is actually usually narrower, right? It's even narrower than mm-hmm. when you're doing a close mm-hmm. hand squat. So narrower stance, which requires more mobility, way more ankle mobility, way more thoracic mobility. That's the one that most people don't consider is thoracic mobility in the bottom of a deadlift, especially a conventional deadlift. If you don't have sufficient thoracic mobility, upper back mobility, then inherently you're going to be arched or hunched over like Quasimodo. You're going to be rounded over Mm -hmm. and it's going to be significantly more stressful on your lower back. As soon as you switch to a wider stance, just like if you look at a close stance squat versus a wide stance squat, close stance squat, unless the person has a tiny torso, if, if you just stand up right now while you're listening, do this a close stance squat, your torso is going to lean forward more. Close stance squat, inherently, your torso will lean forward more. Now, do a wide stance squat. And I don't mean just take your stance out two inches. I mean, take your stance out four or five inches on each side. 
do a squat. Your torso will be significantly more upright. It's so now you take this to a to a deadlift perspective. Close stance, you're going to lean forward way way more, put way more stress on your lower back. You take your stance out 4 to 5 inches per foot, all of a sudden you can be way more upright with there's significantly less of a mobility demand on your thoracic spine. And if one part of your spine is moving, another part of your spine is moving. It's the the whole thing is connected. It's actually something I'm I just learned about in jujitsu, how it all connects. If you ever want to control someone, if you ever want to control anybody in any situation, control their head. Wherever the head goes, the body goes. Hmm. And I've known about this in strength training forever, but I never sort of uh, related it to jujitsu because I'm a white belt. But wherever, one of the main goals in jujitsu is to misalign the spine of your opponent. When the spine of your opponent is misaligned, they can't move. They can't attack you. When you bring their head to the left and their spine is, is staying straight, they can't do anything. They're completely misaligned. So if one part of your spine is moving, then it's going to be affected on another part of your spine. And this is where you see a lot of people in conventional deadlifts really trying to force this thoracic extension in the bottom of the in the bottom of the movement when they don't have the mobility. And what's going to happen is they're going to be essentially trying to force lumbar extension as well. And when you overextend your lumbar spine, even though the funny part is they're trying to extend their lumbar, their thoracic spine, which will also try to extend their lumbar spine, but they aren't actually extending it. It's still flexed because their mobility isn't there. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as they start lifting, it will start to flex more under load. And that's when people have back issues is when it's flexing under load. Mm -hmm. If you can't even get in the right position from the start, then you're really putting yourself <laughs> at risk, which is why most people really hurt their backs doing a conventional deadlift. Not to mention when you got into sumo, your technique was great immediately. Like there was not really much shifting around. You're like, oh, this just feels great. Yeah, it did. It's sumo is just way easier to learn. Lower hip starting position, easier to get into the bottom, more upright spine. Yeah. Less fear around hurting yourself. It's just for me, and this is basic logical coaching. You want to start with the progression that is easier. You don't start with the progression that is more difficult. Yeah. This is basic coaching across all aspects of coaching. You would probably teach your clients about calories before you started to go into each individual macro. It just makes sense. You start mm -hmm. off with the more easy to understand the base of it and go from there. Same thing with strength training. You don't start your client off with snatches. You start them off with learning how to deadlift and maybe then Roma or Romanian deadlift first, whatever it is. You start the easier progression, not the harder. So you progress. So a lot of coaches, they'll start their clients off with conventional deadlifts. I'm like, this is stupid. If unless they have a hip issue, you should be starting off with sumo. And even then, with even those with hip issues, you can do a moderate sumo where they're not super, super wide. The, the stance we're doing is not that wide. Right. It's slightly wider than shoulder width apart. It's basically a squat stance. We're just doing it in a deadlift format with a slightly higher hip position than you would have in a squat. Feels great in the lower back. So yeah. if, if you're progressing, start with the sumo. Your clients will feel way better. I love that you also, because this applies here, but also applies to any exercise uh, regression and progression. And that's just start them off with the easier movement, see how it goes and, and go from there rather than start someone off doing a more difficult variation or a more difficult exercise. It even plays back to the very first point we were talking about, which is getting a higher intensity, 
right? Yeah. You can't get a high intensity if the movement is too difficult to learn. You can reach a higher intensity earlier on in their training if they can master the movement. So get them to meet them where they're at. If their mobility isn't there yet, if their technique isn't there yet, if they're start them off with the easiest progression and with an easier progression, you can take them to a higher level of intensity. If the technique mm -hmm. is too difficult, they can't get it. You can't get them to high enough intensity to really make a difference. Great list. I'm excited for part two, man. I'm we excited have, for uh, part two as well. We have actually more than 10 on our list. So part two might even have some bonus rapid fire at the end. We'll see. There we go. Or we might just cut a couple of them. <laughs> Anything you want to end on? No, this chamomile tea is hitting me. I'm going to be asleep in 15 minutes. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited for next week. I, I appreciate everyone listening very much. I hope you learned a, a thing or two from this episode. And uh, we'll update you on our upcoming 36-hour fast. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>